0: Hi, my. Hi, mai. I'm Alex Pink and this is the Maxim Institute podcast. Today we're going to be talking about free lunches in schools, the Kiwi Build reset, described by one commentator as a capitulation, poverty, inequality and donuts, or at least donut economics. To do this, I'm joined by Maxim Institute's research manager, Kieran Madden. Kia ora, Kieran. Kia ora, Alex. And a special guest, the author, academic and journalist, Max Rashbrook. Kia ora, Max. Welcome to the podcast. Kia ora. It's great to be here. So poverty, inequality, good government, Max, these are the kind of issues that you've spent much of your professional life thinking about. Can you tell us a little bit how you got into this line of work? Well, in an immediate sense, I guess, through most
1: of the 2000s, I was living and working in London and hadn't been sort of deeply engaged in what was going on in New Zealand necessarily, but had been getting increasingly interested in questions of of economic inequality, which I guess were on everyone's minds, particularly after the global financial crisis, which you know, I was working as a financial journalist in London, so I was reporting on that right up close. Um, and so I came back to New Zealand in 2011. I felt like there wasn't much being written for a general audience about inequality in New Zealand, even though you know, I discovered that we'd had the, the biggest increase in income inequality of the developed world in that period in the 80s and 90s. And I just thought it was strange that this wasn't being talked about more and so you know and so I ended up editing a a major work about it and a lot of things have just sort of spilled out of that I guess you know if you take one back a step or two why was I even a sort of person who would have become interested in inequality I think probably a couple of things one is although I grew up in a fairly privileged family in a fairly privileged area Eastbourne in Wellington uh, my parents always you know, cared strongly about, about fairness and equality and they certainly brought us up to think about the fact that we'd had certain advantages and they were they were due to luck, you know, and that a good society tries to adjust for the effects of luck. And also they, they sent me to a struggling decile three high school, um, whereas, you know, a lot of the kids in Eastbourne go to, to private schools or to the elite public schools or whatever. You know, that was pretty eye-opening just in the sense of there's no substitute for being around other people who are really struggling and seeing the reality of their lives um, and seeing what that does to their sort of hopes and aspirations uh, for their own lives and I think that was that was quite foundational in a sense I think that's that's to some extent made me the person that I
0: am. I, I'm, I'm really interested in that um, that sort of sense of you know what you observed while you were at school and and if I'm hearing right sort of drawing a link between that and these issues of Income inequality, wealth inequality. So you, even at that stage, you thought you could see a correlation between um, that sort of uh, material inequality and people's life circumstances and life outcomes? Yeah, well, I don't know if I...
1: I mean, I only thought about... I wasn't a, you know, a hugely political teenager or, or a university student or anything. And I don't think I thought immensely, deeply about it. I think it just... I suppose it just reinforced how fortunate I was you know in the sense that I came from a, a household that was you know that was relatively well off and that you know I mean we just we have books everywhere I mean you can barely move for books and in, in my household you know we have my parents books and my grandmother's books and my great-grandmother's books and you know you contrast that with with some of the households of, of the kids I was going to school with so I just think yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a, like a deep intellectual framework around it at the time or anything. I just thought, you know, life is really, really tough for these people and really tough through, to a large extent through no fault of their own. I suppose later on, I guess what that came out as is thinking, well, I have a responsibility to, to think about this and to talk about this. And if I've, you know, I sort of now think the only thing you can do with privilege is use it against privilege. You know, I can't change, you know, the upbringing that I had and nor should I try to because it was a good one. There was nothing wrong with it in that sense, but I can use it to try and, you know, talk about things in a way that might lead to a world in which, you know, the disparities between those families are, are less than they were when I was going to school.
0: Thinking about inequality then, uh, what's happening with inequality in New Zealand now? Where, 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 are we, where are we at? How unequal is New Zealand at the moment? And maybe you'd like to tell us, as, as you answer that question, what do we even mean when we're talking about inequality? Uh, wealth, income, other considerations?
1: I mean, it's in a way, it's, it's hard to say exactly what's happening right now in a pure sort of data sense, because, you know, as you'll know, you know, the reporting always sort of lags reality by, by a couple of years, really. I mean, in, in the big picture, as I said, we had the, the biggest increase in income inequality, certainly from the mid-80s to the mid-2000s. And, you know, and a lot of people obviously are familiar with that story around the huge, you know, seismic changes in New Zealand society at the time. You know, many of them necessary, no doubt, but with these enormous consequences in terms of widening the imbalance between rich and poor. And we sort of, in a crude sense, in income terms, went from a situation where someone in the richest tenth of the country would have earned about five times as much as someone in the poorest tenth, and, you know, in terms of their disposable income, to a situation... Um, in the early 2000s, where that ratio probably would have been more like 10 to 1, you know, 9 to 1, 10 to 1, that sort of thing. And what's happened really since then is we've just maintained that very high level of income inequality. Um, that declined a little bit under the, the Helen Clark-led Labour governments, mostly thanks to Working for Families, um, higher minimum wage. It looks like it increased a little bit under the previous John Key and Bill English-led national governments. And, like I said, what exactly is happening now isn't totally clear. But we, you know, essentially we have the very high level of income inequality that was created in the 80s and 90s. On wealth inequality, which is the other big resource um, question, uh, we don't have sort of that, you know, long run data, but we know that the wealthiest 1% of individuals have 20% of all the uh, of all the assets, of all the net wealth in the country. Uh, conversely, the poorest half. Have only about two or three percent. So there's enormous inequality of wealth. You know, much much greater than inequality of income. Although you know they both matter and obviously they they interact. And just to touch briefly on your other point, of course there's all kinds of inequalities. And there's yeah, inequalities of gender and region and ethnicity. Um, but I think I mean your know, my work mostly focuses on these material questions because you know and and. The Maxim Institute's own work has shown this, you know, those fundamental questions of the resources you command are incredibly important to the kind of life you have to lead. They're not the only thing, uh, but they are extremely important.
0: Thanks, Karen. I'd like to bring you in at this point, and and so Max has just referred to the work that that we've done on on poverty reduction, which really you've led over the last uh, few years. So can you just start us off by talking about how what poverty is, how we should even think about poverty, and and then I'll pose a similar sort of question uh, to the one I posed to Max a moment ago, which is, what's happening with poverty in New Zealand at the moment? What what are sort of the numbers looking like? What's the state of play?
2: Sure. Well, uh, after some. Quite a, I guess, a few years considering how best to define and how best to, to measure poverty. Um, for me it broadly came down to a notion of just individuals or families not having enough resources to meet their basic needs and by basic needs that's not simply just a roof over um, their heads or food on the table but being able to belong and participate in society uh, which is where it brings in the necessarily uh, relative nature of poverty. So poverty in New Zealand today looks very different to what poverty in New Zealand looked like um, 50 years ago and poverty in New Zealand uh, today looks very different than say what it looks like in Africa um, as uh, at the moment and so it is necessarily relative. Society tends to use poverty to mean all the bad things in the world. Um, uh, when I speak about poverty, I'm primarily talking um, similar to Max around focusing on material resources, um, the material things that um, people need to participate and belong um, and as I mentioned that changes that looks different in different societies at different times so if I
0: asked you how many people are in poverty in New Zealand right now what kind of what kind of answer
2: there's would you give me there's a number of answers to that one which is um, I mean part of the frustration of what got me into the uh, interested in uh, sort of delving into the policy space here was just the the back and forth arguments in Parliament and in the public around uh, numbers around uh, a lot of argy-bargy about sort of particular measurements but not actually getting down to the details of what what can we actually do about this um, regardless of the numbers um whatever it is it's it's too many um so we need to work out what to do there as far as child poverty goes so families um, with children who don't have sufficient resources anywhere from say uh 10 to 30 percent of children um are in poverty depending on the measure use precisely um the sort of fifty percent median, um, and again, there's some measurement issues here because of the um, Stats New Zealand um, challenges recently. But say the last figures we had, uh, if we look at the uh, relative fifty percent beneath the median wage uh, relative measure, um, it's around twenty percent.
1: And and I think those, and it's really important, I think, to to keep the focus on those those relative measures. I mean, that's because when you're absolutely right to talk about, you know, people need not just the roof over the head thing, but to be able to participate yeah. in the side of which they're a part to which they've contributed. And your ability to do that is very much dependent on do you have the things that other people have, yeah. you know, and do you have the things that, you know, that, that middle class people, you know, can afford. So can you, you know, can you afford birthday presents? You know, can you afford to have people around for dinner when you've got something to celebrate? Can you afford to go and visit someone who's sick in hospital? You know, those are all things that if your income starts to fall behind the average, start to become out of reach and then that's the problem and then you're back and then of course you realize that poverty is very much connected to inequality in that wider sense and that's just a question of well where are the resources distributed
0: so can you talk to me a little bit about the connection you see between poverty and inequality because i know i've talked to some people who say Really, the issue is poverty, but we have to use the language of inequality. Um, you know, New Zealand has a, a strong egalitarian streak. Inequality is the, is the concept that gets people to pay attention, even though what we're actually concerned about is a sort of an insufficiency of, of resource. I'm guessing you don't see it quite like that, Max.
1: No, because I think, I mean, I sometimes use the, when I'm doing talks, I sometimes sort of start off with a picture, well, half a picture of two kids on a seesaw. So initially, when I put the slide up, you can only see one of the two kids, and I sort of say, "Well, this this picture is inexplicable if you don't look at both. If you can't see both halves, and so I bring up the other half um, because you know what's going on in seesaw makes no sense if you just look at one end of it." I fundamentally think you know these are questions about how where are resources distributed right across a society. I mean, I think this is why the conversation around inequality is more challenging than the conversation around poverty because when you talk about poverty people who are themselves not poor can sort of think to themselves ah yes that's something about other people and so it's a safer conversation whereas when you talk about inequality you're forcing people to confront the fact that they have a position on that inequality spectrum and you're forcing them to confront the question is that position deserved or not and you know now this this is this is very difficult controversial political territory but i do think that just as much as there is an issue with a very large number of households not having enough i think there are rewards at the upper end which are not deserved now you know it's reasonably i think most people would agree that this you know some inequalities are justified based on things that people can genuinely control like their hard work the contribution they decide to make to society but inequalities beyond that are not justified, I yeah, I just don't think that a lot of the, the wealth, well, some of the wealth and some of the income that goes to people at the upper end is justified and that actually you're not going to be able to address poverty, frankly, without redistributing from upper to lower. And so I think you have to have the whole spectrum in view, even if that makes the conversation a lot less comfortable for some people.
0: But if, you, if you've redistributed such that you met the uh needs for people at at say the bottom of the income distribution so they had a sufficiency would you still be concerned about the gap above that
1: um i would be much 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 less concerned about it i but i mean there's there's the pragmatic answer right if you did that level of redistribution that you genuinely eliminated poverty i mean let's let's talk about that for a second uh there probably wouldn't be that much left <laughs> at the upper end, you know. Um, certainly none of sort of the real kind of extravagance or whatever. I guess a more sort of philosophical answer to that is, yeah, I mean, I, it would bother me far less. And and I'm certainly comfortable with, with you know, a certain degree of inequality. Um, you know, and you, and you need things to, you know, recompense doctors, for instance, for their very long training and for the extraordinary stresses of their jobs and things like that. I guess there there would still be some issues if you still had people with very significant wealth, but if that allows them privileged access to what you would term other goods, you know, so if it allows... Political them, access, etc. cetera. Political access yeah, is okay. the classic one, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, because, and there are other ways to guard against that, of course, but if you do have people, and of course we see this in the US mm. to an enormous extent, we're lucky not so much in New Zealand... But, you know, the enormous disproportionate influence of people of wealth, which then corrodes politics, and it then starts to shift political decisions in the direction of widening inequality again. So that would be my, there would still be a concern there, I think.
2: A lot of the inequality literature and arguments have come from the US, from the UK, for example. And I know... At least the last time and, and feel free to correct me on the stats but the top one percent in the us is around 22 percent or something around um of, of income of yeah. income yeah um maybe 13 14 in the uk whereas in new zealand it's sort of seven to nine ish or something around that level um to, to what extent is is the new zealand sort of flavor to this this inequality um is a lot of the discussion on inequality here sort of fueled by notions that are Exacerbated or much worse overseas than in New Zealand
1: yeah I think I, I think it is I mean of course you know we in New Zealand were often just quite a, a small craft sort of tossed on the waves of international politics and international debates and discourse and so I think we certainly are influenced by those international um, discussions I don't know that I don't know that people's view of what goes on in the US or the UK sort of uh, leads them into false thinking about what happens in New Zealand necessarily. I mean, it is important to make the point you just made that our inequality is is much less significant in some elements. I guess I guess there's different contours because probably the New Zealand one percent is 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 less wealthy and is less powerful than the one percent in the UK and the US. But if you take a slightly different measure and you divide the, the populations into fifths, interestingly, the distribution the, in New Zealand and the UK, where I've spent a lot of time, is more or less identical. So the poorest fifth in both countries gets about 8% of income. The richest fifth gets about 40% of income. So actually, that's remarkably similar. So in New Zealand, it's probably less a division between you know the 1% and the 99%. And there's more about probably a wider class of people, including also the class that I grew up in, maybe the wealthiest fifth, the wealthiest tenth, who have strikingly different lives now and outcomes to people in the poorest half of the country or the poorest 60% or something. So you're right, it does have a different feel and flavour here.
2: It does sort of follow the sort of that, I guess what's called the like Pareto principle, of that sort of 80-20, you know, broadly rule, both on the on the other end of the income spectrum as well. Um, so if... if um, say, child poverty is around 20%. Um, there's also the sort of roughly around 10% of, of families with children who um, are in chronic or severe poverty. Um, and this we haven't really necessarily talked about um, poverty over time as well and, and what these trends look like over time.
1: And that's one of the concerning things, right? Because, you know, I just said New Zealand now has the same income distribution as the UK. And people would find that very surprising because... For all that it's changed, you know, the UK is still, to some large extent, quite a class-ridden society. And, you know, there's enormous privilege, particularly amongst the people who have the key positions in the media, the judiciary, parliament, these kinds of things. You know, a lot of them come from Eton and the rest of it. So New Zealanders would be very surprised, I think, to learn the income distribution is the same. But what I think is, is crucial here is that New Zealand's level of inequality like that is quite recent whereas Britain's always had it. But what that makes me worried about is what happens if we maintain this level of income inequality over time and we don't reduce it? There is a reasonable fear that we will start to look more like the UK in the long run with greater divisions based on privilege and class and who knows who and who went to what school because the UK seems to suggest that if you have long-running inequality and therefore long-running poverty and long-running child poverty, you do end up with quite a class-based society.
0: Although Max, wouldn't the the sort of counter to that be that there, there's a sort of an entire history to the UK that we simply aren't going to to replicate? And it's it's that history and those systems of uh, of patronage of network, which you know they're not generated by income or wealth inequality uh, alone. And and I suppose as I've just been listening to, to you speak and, and reflecting a little bit on it, I can't help but wonder if sometimes inequality is actually a proxy for other things that we care about. Um, so back to the point about sufficiency, for example, or, or taking your point about political access. Uh, there are other ways that we can address those concerns without necessarily thinking in, in terms of, of inequality. Um, and I find myself wondering whether we're better to focus on those issues in their own right, uh, rather than inequality, which potentially at best is a step removed from the things that we care about, but, and potentially could be a distraction.
1: I think it's a fair point that there are, yeah, there are other things, and sometimes you might say wider things that we're concerned about. I think that's a good point. And sure, with things like access to politics, you can have a, um, you can block the transmission from wealth to influence over politics. So you could have very tough laws on political donations like the Canadians do. You can't give more than $1,500 a year to any party in Canada. So yeah, there, there are other ways to deal with it. That's absolutely true. And sometimes there are, you know, for instance, I mean, I think it was Aristotle who said, you know, wealth is not useful in itself, but only as a means to other things. And of course, that's, that philosophy is at the heart of the well-being work that the government's doing and that's absolutely true um but i think we come back to the point that inequality you know wealth and income and therefore the distribution of it is not the only thing but it's still incredibly important because all those other things that i think you're hinting at that you might be concerned about what kinds of lives can people lead do we have socially cohesive um communities do we have peace do we have a a positive sort of shared sense of you know nationhood of being able to deal with political problems together I think all those things sitting underneath them at a very foundational level are the questions about resources while inequality isn't the only thing I absolutely don't think it's a distraction I absolutely think it's fundamental it's just the question of where are those resources distributed does that distribution cause problems
0: well, you mentioned um, well-being, um, so I, I think this would be a good, good point to start talking about the, uh, the government's uh, well-being uh, approach and well-being policy. And, and of course, one thing policymakers are focusing on right now is the recent announcement that uh, from next year there's going to be a trial uh, launched for free lunches in primary and intermediate schools. Um, the trial's going to be in 30 schools which have been identified as having high levels of disadvantage and every student in those schools uh, will be offered a free and healthy lunch. Um, Max, I saw that you welcomed this policy on Twitter. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you think it's a good move? It's a complex one because you can criticise that move probably both, crudely
1: speaking, from the left and the right. I mean, people on the right would worry about what they see as the erosion of parental responsibility to provide food for their kids. People on the left um, think that it's a a distraction and that if you eliminated poverty, well why would you need to be providing food in schools? Um, And look, you can can understand both those arguments, but I think pragmatically it's the right step. It's not a cure-all, but my recollection of the expert advisory group uh, work on poverty said that the evidence does suggest that if you provide good food in schools, it does help kids learn better There, is, there is an effect and, yeah, and that's what you'd probably expect. Anyway and another pragmatic reality at the moment is that we do you know as, as you both know have very large numbers of families in poverty. Um, you know there was a story uh, just recently about the very large number of food parcels and help that the Auckland City Mission is providing and there was a woman interviewed on the radio who was saying one of the big problems I face is school lunches and she said, you know, she's got several kids she said it can cost $100 a week for me to try to provide decent lunches for my kids that is a very large amount of money when benefits themselves are only $200, $300 a week so I just think it's it's practically necessary I also think it's potentially a positive symbol about the fact that we all care about how well children are doing And of course, that's always the argument for universal benefits and things like that. We all have a stake in how well kids are doing in this country. Uh, Coming together around food can be a really positive thing. I mean, you'd hope that school lunches are maybe tied into programs that teach kids about where food comes from and sort of, you know, get them to think about gardening and the food cycle and stuff. I think practically and as a sort of philosophical emblem, I think it's it's a positive move, although it's obviously not a cure-all
0: for anything. So this is the kind of issue that I think, you know, you referred to some people worry about uh, an erosion of parental responsibility, or in other terms, you might call it sort of a moral hazard kind of question, right? If you um, uh, put it crudely, if you protect people from the consequences of particular actions or, or decisions, then you get more of, you know, a kind of behavior that you might not might not want to encourage so how do you think about those issues of moral hazard generally and and i imagine the answer is going to vary a little bit depending on whether we're talking about children as we are here uh, and whether we're talking about adults in their own right
1: yeah it's again it's really complex i mean and obviously you know with the children there's a strong element that whatever you think about their parents um you know punishing the children is seems to me profoundly wrong um I also think there's, you know, and again you can see, I mean, I, I lived in France very briefly as a child, went to school there, yeah, you know, and all children get an amazing because if because it's France, high quality lunch, um, and I think actually my parents telling remember my parents telling me that a lot of, um, you know, uh, local body employed staff also got lunch provided because again it was seen as a an important thing that you did as part of your responsibility as a school, as an employer. There's a different view of what responsibilities might be. Um, More generally, I mean, I think the reality is that if people are not providing lunch for their kids, in all but a small number of cases, it will be because they just simply don't have enough money. You know, you look at the Families Commission did some research a while back. It shows that poor families are just as likely as rich families to... You know, to make up a shopping list, to um, you know, to do that before they go shopping, to you know, budget carefully for food, to have meals together. You know, Their practices and their budgeting are just as good as anybody else's. The problem is they just don't have enough money and that's why their kids are going to school hungry. And more generally on those moral hazard questions, this is a very sweeping answer, but I think just generally people respond much better to support than they do to punishment. You always have to have the potential for punishment there in any system, otherwise it's a total free-for-all. But, you know, we think about the recent evidence around welfare and conditionality, as it's called, you know, sanctioning parents. I just see a lot of research coming out. There was some research, big big stuff from the UK recently, It just very clearly said punishment in the welfare system just doesn't seem to work. It doesn't create the outcomes we want. When you look at it, it doesn't you you threaten to sanction parents, it doesn't get them doing the right things for the kids. It doesn't get them back into work. The evidence seems to be that they just, they drop out of the system or they start gaming it or they start, you know, I mean, who knows what. Punishment seems to work very, very badly. And the evidence is that if you provide people with really good support, and we haven't been very good at that in New Zealand, you know, genuine, genuinely like working one-on-one with people in the welfare system Assessing their strengths, assessing their weaknesses, tailoring programs to what they need. We haven't done that very well, I don't think. But when we do do that well, it's incredibly successful.
2: Mm. And I mean, I'd, I'd agree with you there, Max. I think for for the majority of New Zealanders, the system is you know adequate. It, it it seems to be sufficient. It's it's there for families who do you know if they're struggling, they're struggling for a time. If they need um, help for for a certain amount of time, they can get it. But there are still a significant proportion of families of, of whom the current system, the way it's set up, even if it's universal, is still not sufficient. And there is a great greater need for, and, and this is where ideas like Fano uh, aura and other sort of more tailored notions of policy, I think, come into it, um, where there are navigator-esque people um, who can help, who can build relationships with the families, who can actually um ask them questions what is actually your chief concern here what is it that's you know learn a bit more about their stories Um, and I think part of the reason why um, sanctions are often not seen as effective is because people aren't simply economic rational minds they're not necessarily responding to I'm going to get some less money here I'm therefore I'm not going to do that there are often deeper things um, deeper questions deeper concerns deeper behaviors um, at play here which mean that it's not going to be effective
1: no and and often I mean the terrifying thing and is certainly true from the UK research I'm not sure about the New Zealand research often people who've been sanctioned don't even understand what's happened to them or you know or they've been sanctioned for being late for an appointment when you know it was, it was the, the buses were stuffed or whatever yeah there's some really sort of frightening things around the edges there but and again I think we could bring it back to our own lives I mean I know that you know, I mean, I do need people sort of checking up on the work that I do, and there's all there's always the potential for slacking off. But I know that what gets me doing my best work is feeling supported. You know, it's feeling that people have got my back, believe in me, are working with me, you know, are trying to help me do better work. Um, the times when I've, you know, in the media, in the UK, when I've worked in high-pressure situations with you know, a lot of sanctions effectively in the air uh, and, a, and a very tough kind of strict father approach uh Ones where I've probably done my worst work, frankly, because it's just such an unpleasant environment.
2: Is the government the best placed to go beyond to form those relationships and to be? Um, does the state have the capacity to to love and support in that way?
1: I think there's a there's a whole chunk of things that the state can't provide around around communities and people's sense of belonging. Um. You know, I think one of the things that's crucial for us to to flourish, we're very, we're social beings. And so we need, you know, close, positive, warm connections with our neighbours. We need to be in communities that are functional. where People look out for each other with their strong ties and things like that. And obviously governments can't create that. But they can do an awful lot to support that. I mean, it's hard to have good, loving, strong bonds in a community where, you know, the rubbish isn't being taken away and the streets aren't safe and people are desperately ill because they're in poor health. So I see government as absolutely crucial to supporting good communities so it doesn't deliver good community. In terms of its actual interactions with people, I I would like us to be ambitious about how good government can be at that because people go into government because they want to help people. Um, And a lot of people in WIN's offices, for instance, would like to be in a much more supportive relationship with WIN's clients but are prevented from doing so by the system um, in multiple ways. You know, while it's complex and while, for instance, when you're working at WINS, you do, you do have to deny people things because you're responsible to taxpayers, not just the people in front of you. I don't think it's impossible that a wind centre could be a place where people come and they at least feel respected and they feel safe and it is a positive outcome and a positive environment. It's probably never going to be an environment that's overflowing with love and compassion. I mean, we have to be realistic but I think public services could be revolutionised so that there, there is some degree of warmth and there is some degree of care and that they are centred around what the person and the family and the whanau needs, like in whanau order. I don't think that's out of reach.
0: Yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd certainly hope that um, if you went to a government agency for help, you'd be treated with respect and with de- dignity and with empathy. And I think the the sad thing and something that sort of struck me a few years ago was hearing those stories of, of people who who aren't um, and who sort of, I, I came to think of it in my head, I'm not sure if this is the official description, but sort of the receptionist barrier. You know, you walk in and you kind of get that cold look and, and you feel like I'm not supposed to be here. And the, the sort of the thing that I found really confronting about that actually was some people who'd had that experience and then said, but you know, when I went down the road to the uh, uh well perhaps I shouldn't name the you know the company, but when I went down the road to the um to the loan shark, there I was treated with dignity and there I was treated with respect. And and that transaction was much easier for me. And I kind of thought that's that's a bit of an indictment on our on our public services.
1: That's a terrible indictment. And I think I've heard that similar research. I think some of that came out of the Family One Hundred yeah, work right. the Auckland yeah. City yeah. Mission was doing. Yeah, it's a profound indictment. I mean how can it be that Effectively, loan sharks are treating you better than than the state is. I mean, on one level, there's an obvious answer Mm -hmm. because they They want your business. They they want your business, you know. Um, But yeah, the bare minimum, you know, and I think, but it's not helped because, you know, and again, this this is controversial territory. But if your attitude towards government is that the main thing you really need to try to do is to shrink it and to minimize what it does, and if you really privilege, you know some of those harder-edged arguments about individual responsibility. There is no way that leads you down a path that enhances the dignity um, and respect in public services. You have to have a, a modicum of support for the work that government does you know, in amongst everything that communities do and the market does and all the rest of it. You, you know, I think the very sometimes the overly strong sort of anti-government sentiment of the last few decades is partly responsible for the way that people are treated when they go into a WINS centre.
0: Yeah, I think you need a robust sense of what government is for, and then you want to see government play that role really, really well. And obviously we might debate, you know, what, what's the scope of that role? Um, but I know in your work on, on good government you've sort of said, hey, questions about just size, whether we're talking about big government or small government, are, are really a, a distraction, um, which, which I agree with. Um, and, and you've talked about the idea that, uh, you know, government should be, uh, should be active, and I think you, used, you talked about sort of government being ambitious um, recently. Uh, I suppose, um, in, in a sense, that's what the current government was sort of uh, going to the election with. Perhaps there have been some uh, recent challenges to the idea that the government might actually be um, ambitious in, in practice as well as in, uh, as, in, as well as in promise. And I'm thinking here about things like ruling out a capital gains tax and obviously, most recently, uh, KiwiBuild being uh, reset um, and the original target of hundred thousand houses being downgraded ever so slightly to just as many as as many as we can,
2: <laughs> as <laughs> and, fast as
0: we can. as many as we can. Well, as fast as we can. That's that's true. And you know, one one journalist's pretty brutal assessment of this was to say this: the, the prime minister has shown herself to be just another transactional smile and wave politician. I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask if you think that's a fair assessment, and what what all of that says for your. Um, for your desire to see a more ambitious, more active government.
1: Yeah, well I mean that, um I think that, that line is from Bernard Hickey's column in Newsroom Right. And I thought um it's a pretty, you know, excoriating column. And I th- I thought he was absolutely right on the policy issues. Um I wasn't sure I agreed with him on the politics because the reality is that, you know, the Prime Minister is dealing with uh, being in a coalition, you know, that includes a very centrist party Uh, she's also dealing with a country where you know 45 percent of people voted for a party that had been in power for nine years which is a really extraordinary endorsement of the status quo and I think a lot of people particularly on the left forget that and you know the polling about is the country going in the right direction you know running leading up to the 2017 election most people were saying yes it is going in the right direction um, so the sort of the, the the ground is not really there, uh, I think, for Ardern to govern in the way that some people might want her to. I also think, and this comes back really on the point you're making about government, I think you can see a lot of what the government is trying to do. So there's there's a kind of new politics that's trying to emerge, but it's sort of being held back by the constraints and sort of the grasping hands, if you like, of the old politics. And a great example is, yeah, I mean, the government sort of certainly sounded very ambitious, you know, um, in the run-up to the, well, the government we now have, Labour and Green, sounded very ambitious in the 2017 election, but they also signed themselves up to the budget responsibility rules, you know, which we've all spent a lot of time debating in the last couple of years. Those rules, I think, have no basis in economics there is no real benefit to having public debt at 20% of GDP that you wouldn't get with public debt at 30% of GDP. You know, it doesn't buy you any meaningful insurance against the next recession, I don't think. I think that's a purely ideological, well, ideological and political move. And why would you make a move like that when you're two parties who you would think would believe in greater spending? It's because you're operating in an environment where people have learned to distrust government. This comes back to the point I made earlier. The I think the the denigration, the downgrading of government, you know, of the idea of active government has been so strong in the last few decades that even parties that are instinctively pro-active government feel like they have to show that they want to restrain government. You know, they want to keep spending thirty percent of GDP public debt to twenty percent, and so all those things, you know, th- those restraints on government from the old politics are really limiting the government's ability to do the new politics of well-being, an active government that it would probably like to do.
0: How do you think we might get a change from where we are now then to to a place where that kind of more ambitious, more active government uh, becomes possible? Because I, I suppose as I've looked at some of these questions I've thought, you know, to be uh, to be fair to the politicians involved over the years, of whatever stripe, there's an extent to which they're always constrained by the electorate, by what the public is you know, prepared to vote for, uh, obviously. Um, so to me, there seems to be like a, a really sort of salient question here. How can political leaders uh, generate and inspire change that allow them to do some of these things that they, uh, that they want to do? Um, is MMP sort of inevitably a, almost at best a handbrake, perhaps an insurmountable obstacle? Um, to some of this uh, kind of uh, more active uh, government, um, and and do, you know, do, is it sort of overly cynical to think that you maybe have to wait for a crisis in order to get the necessary momentum to generate the kind of uh, more sweeping changes?
1: I, I really hope not,
0: because I think you know
1: crises are, uh, are a terrible way to do politics. Yeah, they're a pretty
0: damaging way <laughs> to
1: make change. But. Well, you know, I think it was um, Obama's. Uh, guy Ram Emanuel who said, "You know, never let a good crisis go to waste, but um I think that's very cynical politics um I mean I think there's a there's a couple of potential ways i think i mean I think governments obviously principally should follow you know broadly through the contours of public opinion, but it is acceptable for them to try to lead public opinion in specific examples where they want to spend a bit of their political capital." So, I mean, I would like to see the government being really bold around a couple of things that are important, that we know would work, and which would demonstrate the benefits of active government. I mean, I think a a huge public house building program that does a lot of stuff through prefabrication would be one thing. It's a double benefit, more state houses, which would be great. Also, we probably need the government to create the market for prefabrication because it's just not happening organically in the way that you would hope the market would. So some boldness would be one way of breaking out of the of the current trap I think I think the other one but also is just doing government very differently and you know, I talked a lot about this in the book that I put out last year government for the public good that you know I think we have too much of a focus on representative democracy and we don't have enough participatory democracy we don't have enough situations where citizens are getting directly engaged in decision making and I think that's important because. Philosophically, isn't that what we've always thought we're working towards, you know, self-government, people taking as many decisions themselves as they reasonably and feasibly can, given the limitations on everyone's time and knowledge. It's also, I think, the way of making government more effective, I mean, why do markets work well? They work well because they're incredibly responsive to what consumers want in certain cases, and of course markets fail and you get monopolies and things. But when markets work really well, this turbocharged responsiveness to consumers, governments in the last 30, 40 years have not done the comparable thing. They haven't turbocharged their responsiveness to what citizens want. So they haven't done a lot of the whanau order type things where they rearrange services around what families say they need. They haven't made dealing with, you know, Engaging with public services more respectful and dignified, and they haven't, you know, built all these new ways like citizens' assemblies or sort of, you know, deep online consensus forming, that I think are the way of the twenty-first century. And I think doing that, saying, "Hey, we're going to do government very differently," would be a great way to
0: get the authority to actually do more. Karen, I know you've you've thought about about these um, questions of of representative democracy. Um, how do you think about what max is advocating for here in in, in relation to promoting more forms of participatory Mm. democracy
2: i'd start out by saying i think there's there is at least a philosophical shift going more towards ideas of sort of human-centered design and co-design in policy and and saying actually it's not just the the bureaucracy coming up with policies to sort of uh, do to people um, and there's more a sense of Let's devise policies uh, both for and with um, people, and I think there's that's there's something to be applauded there. I mean, I've got more sympathy for the uh, if we think about sort of representative models of democracy. There's kind of the broadly the delegate on the one hand, as in our representatives are there to just be sort of a microphone for their um, constituents uh, to amplify what they want versus a sort of more trusty, Um, sort of the Edmund Burke-esque way of representing, whereby we uh, elect representatives of whom we trust to make judgments on our behalf. I admit I've got more I've got mixed feelings about this because uh, I've got great sympathy for a, for a trustee model and, and 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 a sense of being able to vote in somebody, particularly somebody of whom I can go and meet at some point. So that sense of being place based as well is is important um, to me. The hard part for me is I think there are fewer and fewer people. <laughs> Um, in power that I could probably say that I could trust for that sense. So I'm, I'm torn. It's dreadfully cynical of you. <laughs> I know I am dreadfully cynical. It's but, but it,
1: It's about a balance though, isn't it? Precisely, because I mean, yeah. I'm certainly not saying let's sweep away representative democracy. No. And I think that's a And you use insane. the word
2: complementary, I think, in your book.
1: Yeah, and, and, re, and rebalancing. And, you know, I mean, the things I like, you know, sort of that terrible term, but, you know, they call it participatory budgeting. You get local councils to put up a proportion of their budget for people to allocate directly. But it's not you know, stupid kind of referendum-style votes. It's, you know, the local council goes out and has meetings with people neighbourhood by neighbourhood, ward by ward, says, hey, there's 10% of the infrastructure budget up for grabs. How do you want to spend it? And so you're forcing those ordinary people to actually make trade-offs, so they're doing real politics, but to make trade-offs about things in their local area, which are the things they know about, and it's a bit like final order. You know, they know what they need to quite a profound extent. And you go through those processes and then you sort of all kind of, you know, aggregate it up and then eventually, you know, you have a big public vote on how that budget is allocated. You know, and there's, and there's really good evidence that it's highly effective, at, you know, increases the services that go to the poor, it increases the quality of services, it increases the outcomes. And it's just a really sensible way of getting more participation from people while retaining all the good things that representative democracy gives us.
0: So it seems to me that there's there's a way in which we're sort of looping back to some of the earlier discussion here because we're now starting to talk about trust. We're talking about relationship between people in leadership and, and government and, and, their, and their constituents and those kind of questions of um, cohesion and participation that sort of grounded our discussion about inequality uh, and poverty. Um, so I, I think it would be interesting just to explore this the, these questions of trust a little bit, uh, perhaps through the lens of love or at least... The lens of tax as love, uh, because that's that's a phrase that's gained a little bit of currency in New Zealand in the last uh, last sort of two or three years, and I know you were involved in a in a debate or, or a panel about this uh, recently, and um, I thought you had a really interesting story about this i uh, this this link, not tax as love exactly. But this this idea about what we pay to government in some way represents our trust in government. At the start of your book on governance, when you talked about sort of the, the contrast, the, the Batmobile uh, story, I wondered if you could just tell us that story and then and then just sort of um, talk us through what that means for the trust that people place in government.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's funny. That's another, I mean, we were talking about what school I went to earlier. That's another sort of story from my childhood because I remember seeing reruns of the of the Batman show from the 60s When i was a kid and it's funny it was such a conservative sort of moral majority kind of kind of show in a weird way for a superhero tv series but um yeah i vividly when i started writing the government book i remembered from 20 years earlier seeing a batman episode where they pull up in the batmobile outside a tower block um and they're about to go off and fight catwoman uh but before they do batman says to robin wait robin we need to put some money in the parking meter I mean a, a phrase is just completely inconceivable in a modern like Christopher Nolan Batman film. Um and Robin says no one's going to give the Batmobile a parking ticket. Uh Batman says no Robin, we uh this money goes towards building better roads. We all must do our part. And and then he puts and then he puts the coin in the parking meter and only then only then can they go off and fight crime. I mean it's it's really it's really striking. And albeit Batman was a show that was trying to push quite a strong point. I still think that's quite reflective of how people felt about government. And you're writing in the New Zealand context, I mean, he was an American, but he was in New Zealand, Leslie Lipson said, you know, that people here sort of see government as themselves by another name, which sort of brings us back to participatory you know, democracy, which is trying to make government ourselves by another name as much as possible. So I think that was, you know, there was a, there was a greater trust in government in that era, um it was probably seen as being closer to people. It was you know, And therefore people were more happy to entrust government with their tax dollars. But part of that was also that they thought government was effective. And that, this brings us back to you know people's skepticism about government because you don't think you know, people pay a lot of attention to the philosophical arguments that have gone on in the last 30 or forty years. But one of the big claims of the last thirty or forty years is that actually government doesn't work very well. And if you don't think government something works very well, you're not going to trust it with your tax dollars, are you? And so these questions about how effective government is and how effective people think it is are absolutely crucial to people's support for paying tax.
2: Uh, I mean, just looking at the IGPS surveys on trust, the recent ones, and it's basically any single significant institution um, as basically less than half the population trust them.
1: Except for the police, right, who are... Still quite highly trusted.
2: Yes, yeah. I remember reading about um, the police recently when they shifted towards um, sort of your local um, local cop on the beat um, to being like highway patrol and people who would get you. They're out, they're out to get you. Uh, the trust in police diminished at that point. Um, you know, it's still it's still very high in relative terms, but there's a sense that at one point the police were for you and they st- they still are, of course. But there's that sense that you're also looking in your rearview mirror. Every now and then to see if, see if they're there, um, but but I mean the point about trust is, is is important, and I think Kiwi builds a good example of of why it's not necessarily irrational at this point to to have some suspicion or caution around trusting government's ability to deliver on the promises or be effective. Um, and like you said, it's not necessarily. Uh, The Prime Minister or Labour's challenge here. It's part of the, they've got a coalition, it's part of our constitutional, it's part of MMP that's made this very difficult to, for for them to, for the government to do what they want to do or not the government necessarily but at least the Labour Party in this instance to do what they want to do
1: although they can't they can't blame New Zealand first for kiwi build no, ind- no interestingly true. enough would like to maybe but yeah 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 and uh, and people I think as Audrey young was making the point that, you know this will now make people skeptical about every promise that labor makes in future so it's quite corrosive and I, and I do think that's absolutely true and I mean even though as you can tell I didn't think the budget responsibility rules were a good idea Against all the people saying, oh, they have to be broken because we need the social spending, I spent a lot of time saying, no, you have to stick with them because it is so corrosive when you break your promises and it actually degrades people's long-term faith in government in a way that will make that social spending you want to see harder in the long term.
0: Yeah, I I think the phrase that has been coming to mind for me in in terms of some of the uh, government policy objectives um, is, is governing by BHAG. You know, big, hairy, audacious goal. So 100,000 houses, a billion trees, $3 billion in the Provincial Growth Fund, uh, and so on. And and I think one of my big concerns about that is is exactly as you say, that, that people's trust starts to ebb over time and that that, that affects, uh, really, that, that affects everything. One of the other uh, big debates that we've had um, recently has been about economic growth and whether economic growth is a good thing uh, in and of itself. Um, or whether it's sort of a, a means to an end, um, or, or whether we shouldn't even want it even even as a, a means to an end. And I referred earlier to the uh, the idea of donut economics. Um, Karen, can you give us a little bit of an overview of what donut economics is? And then, Max, I'd be interested in your views on, on the merits of economic growth.
2: Yeah, sure. Donut economics is an idea by a, a British economist, I think, by the name of um, Kate Roworth uh, from I think affiliated with Oxford and Cambridge, whose broad interest is in climate change and climate change economics. If one can imagine a donut in the middle of the, or in the donut itself, it is a, a safe and just, um, or sustainable and just um, society. Uh, on the outside of the donut is what I think she calls an ecological ceiling. And, and this is basically a limit on economic growth, a limit on the economic production that would, um, cause issues to the environment, so things like climate change, things like uh, things like water quality, ozone layer, biodiversity, these kind of things. Um, So if growth is going to influence or impact negatively on these areas, um, there needs to be a ceiling to stop. So that's the outside of the donut. On the inside of the donut, there is a social floor or something along along those lines. Um, Basically, we're talking about poverty before, we're talking about not being able to participate and belong in society. Um, There should be a threshold there that if you go uh, in, in the middle of the donut, you are, you are basically in poverty and basically um, in, in, an, in an unjust situation. So the idea is that growth or economic activity should be bounded both uh, at the bottom so that people have enough to belong and participate, but also at the top as long as it is, um, if it will cause an impact to um, ecological and um, sort of climate sustainability of the planet. So it's basically saying there's a floor for people in and in a, in a ceiling as well um, for, our, for our planet. And so the economy has to operate within those two? Correct, it's, sort of, the, it's bounded, yeah. Yeah, within the floor and the ceiling. And, and it, I guess she's used donut very well because it's become a very big thing. So um, it's the power of metaphor there, isn't it?
1: Yeah, although I had a thought just the other day that if she wanted a metaphor of something that's sort of vaguely circular or annular... Um, why Why not use a life raft? Um, you know, the orange and white ones. Because they're the same shape as a donut, but they have really positive connotations. We're saving things. Whereas donuts are
2: terribly unhealthy things. No, I, I, have, I have Homer Simpson in my head. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and they're like the uh, the beacons of consumerism as well.
1: Yeah. So, so I find that bit
0: of a little...
2: Anyway, that was just, well, that's a may, curious Maybe you could sort of patent that idea. Yeah,
1: life raft economics. Yeah, yeah
0: although life raft economics also has some... Some issues uh, to do with the the term that I'm just hearing going off in my head, uh, sort of doom and gloom and all to the life rafts. But but so Max, then how do you think about um, economic growth uh, w- when you're thinking? I mean, if, if you sort of if you think about something like what Kate Rayworth is 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 advocating, in a sense that there's there might be limits we don't want to go beyond. I mean, is that a premise that you accept? And how do you think about economic growth uh, serving people's needs without? Uh, damaging what's sort of necessary for long-term sustainability.
1: Yeah, I, I think. I mean, I, I think Railworth's basic, you know, concept and visualization is is brilliant, um, and it ties in again with the wellbeing work, you know, which is saying well that the aim here is that people lead flourishing lives, lives that have reason to value, you know, and and that's the main measure and not GDP. So these things are all sort of consistent. I mean, specifically on economic growth, I think the. I don't think we're having a really good debate about it yet because we've probably had, you know, a long period where growth was really held up as being this brilliant thing that we should we should aim for and it was the engine of the, the universe and stuff. You've now got quite a lot of people very, I think, sort of quite flippantly saying, ah, growth is terrible, it's caused all the problems that we see around us and we need to abandon this, you know. I mean, you've got people saying it's an evil concept, just about. I I would say that you sort of draw an analogy with morality here. You know, if you're very concerned with being moral, then that's that's being moral. If you're the opposite, that's being immoral. If you're not concerned either way, and you're sort of stepping outside the world of morality, you're amoral. Now, for all that that's not usually a term of, (laughs) a positive term, Um, I think it makes sense to be a growth. So not saying we really need to aim for growth as the principal thing, but also not saying we need to abandon growth, because actually that's still, if you're obsessed with abandoning growth, you've still got growth at the heart of your thinking. The thing that makes sense to me, and I think is probably implicit in Raworth's work, is that your a growth. You say, it's just not the main thing. What we want to do is ensure that we're living in a just space, as Kieran was talking about, that, we're, that people are well developed, um, are living fulfilling lives. We also want to ensure, ensure that we're not damaging the environment, and we're not overshooting, those are the th- just the things that we need to prioritise and then if we get economic growth well that's probably great because you know it is through market exchanges that we get a lot of the things that we rely on but if we don't well too bad because we're actually concentrating on the things that matter most so i think that's that's the the only sensible way to look at it the next question is well okay can we still maintain the growth, you know, people's ability to, to increase the number of market transactions because it's market transactions that gets you all the things, even like health equipment and stuff that we all rely on. Can we make that stuff as weightless as possible so that we do have growth uh, while staying within environmental limits? But that is a second order question.
2: I think I think I'd echo that echo that sense of it being a, a, a sort of second order and I think it comes down to purpose as well like I'd, I think I'd push back a little bit about it being sort of about being a growth as if it's sort of stepping back and it's almost ambivalent about whether it is more I probably argue it's more a sense of well, what is what is growth for is it achieving that purpose is it is it serving the the sort of the the needs that you spoke about before if it isn't then if if I think someone else used an analogy around you know we need it's it's essential we need food to survive, but if our life is simply focused on just food, if eating is the end of life, then we're missing out on something else. Um, food sustains us so we can do other things. Um, I think the economy should also be that sense of well, what is it for? It's for people. Um, it's for development. It's for helping people help helping people flourish basically. And when it's not doing that, or when it's doing that unsustainably which I think Rayworth gets at the the ecological side of sort of overshooting but there's a lot there's a lot of other areas that we overshoot as well which I mean going back to the the food in schools question before I think and this probably comes down to a to a value statement as well if schools do end up taking over all of all of the sort of um, food producing function of, of families um, then families lose out something on on that and I think that is in a sense an unsustainable or it's it's not looking at the sustainability of families and, and the role of families to provide for their to provide for their children
1: but it, would, it wouldn't it wouldn't it ever be it wouldn't ever be all the families food production would it because i mean you'd just be talking about lunches and maybe breakfast and you know like when I went, when i went to school in france The French love their food, yeah. So it was just it was just one thing, and French families still provided amazing food, I'm sure, for their kids in the the evenings and deeply part of
2: the French DNA and the French way of life. Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. Um, and I think I guess there's also an interesting point. I mean, I think your point about the purpose of growth is is really well made. I guess I'd still probably see that. I mean, my thinking on this is evolving, but I'd probably still see that in a sort of an A growth kind of light because. I mean, if you're thinking if you're thinking about food production, for instance, I mean, there might be multiple ways through which you can deliver food to people's households. And if, for instance, you know, we did move to a world where, I mean, maybe people went back to growing more of their own food. I mean, there are obviously limits on that. It's not a solution to poverty in, in some way that some, some people seem to think it is. But it would be a good thing because it brings you lots of benefits. That would be you know you wouldn't be increasing growth and you wouldn't need growth you wouldn't have a market exchange that was going on and so again I think you focus on what you're trying to do does it increase growth does it not it's to me that's not the the crucial question and
2: it's just it's been it's, it's part of it part of the problem is that GDP is just seen as as, as the proxy for, for well-being as a proxy mm. for success of a nation and it's 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 reductive and I think Things like, uh, I mean, moving towards some of the living standards framework, which has the, you know, broader capitals around not just money. Things like OECDs, living standards stuff, just the, the broader dashboards of, of things we value, I think are really, uh, they don't necessarily come up with a single number of how well we are doing. They can.
1: Yeah, and do you think there's a problem? I mean, I, I don't have an answer on this. Yeah. Do you think we're so attached to having a single number that we're actually going to struggle to deal with a dashboard or are we, in fact, eventually just going to turn the dashboard into a single number again? Because that's what our brain's like.
0: I, I had I had a, what I thought was a bit of a eureka moment um, earlier this year where I, I sort of suddenly thought, hey, is well-being the new utility? So the sort of sense in which you know a concept like that, which has a lot of uh, resonance for people, suddenly becomes the... You know, our, our small brains can only cope with with so much, and we want to boil things down to one one thing that's sort of relatively easy to grasp. And if we can focus all of our efforts towards that thing, then then that's what we do. Uh, much like the utilitarians attempted to do with with utility, and I think that would be a, a really bad idea if, if the concept of well being went down that track. I'm a little bit afraid that that's uh, that that's what might happen.
1: Well, and I think and. Um Dr. David Hall from AUT, who I, I know you guys work with, um, wrote a really great piece on this uh, in Policy Quarterly earlier this year. We basically sort of said, you know, the living standards framework that we have now, the dashboard is actually not clearly either a utilitarian thing or a sort of genuine, you know, Marsha Sense-style capabilities approach. You can do either of those things with the dashboard as we have it, and actually, the crucial question now is: is what well, is, is what happens now? How are people deciding to interpret that thing, and are they going to interpret it through a utilitarian viewpoint or through some other more holistic viewpoint? Actually, that's still all up for grabs, I think.
0: Well, all up for grabs might be a, uh, a reasonable place to uh, to end because I think there's a lot here that we could uh, that we could keep talking about. But um, Max, I'm going to ask you to to end. Um just with a, uh, a final question, um, which we're going to pose to all our guests. Um, but for the benefit of our listeners, what's one book you've read in the last 12 months that you'd recommend that everybody else reads?
1: I, the main book I would recommend would not be uh, a non-fiction work, as you might expect from our discussion. I hope it's okay if I have a, a fiction yeah, absolutely. recommendation absolutely. instead. I, I cannot uh, talk enough about the Anna Burns novel Milkman, uh, which won the Booker Prize last year and it's a sort of first-person stream-of-consciousness account of what it's like what it was like living in Northern Ireland in Belfast during the Troubles. And it's basically a picture of, and it's an extraordinary, it's kind of funny and bizarre and also incredibly painful. It's a picture of what happens to a community that just exists under total stress all the time and just how life becomes a constant sort of awful awful game of surveillance and everything you do is watched everything is surveilled and everybody is always trying desperately to stay on the right side of everything in case you become a pariah and then you get shot and all these things and it's 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 an amazing account of a pressure cooker world there's also an extraordinary bit of writing with just this character is is voiced with total conviction and she's a yeah teenage girl and her sort of the language is i mean it, it's kind of amazing it's yeah it's funny and it's brilliant and it sounds beautiful the the prose is incredible sort of the rhythm of it is very deliberately very odd and there's all these pauses where you wouldn't expect them and there's run on things where you wouldn't expect them it's just a, a a totally brilliant sort of artistic experience and i just i it's the best novel i've read in a very long time
0: sounds amazing the name again was milkman by Anna Burns. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more from us and to keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. You can also follow us on Facebook and check out videos on our YouTube channel. Just search Maxim Institute on any of those platforms. From the team at Maxim Institute, Matewa, Goodbye for now.